So on our journey this week to embody being awake, to embody enlightenment, we've been intentionally cultivating a direct and intimate experience of the six senses of life, touching, tasting, smelling, sound, sight, and thoughts, and feelings. And as we're starting to settle and our practice deepens, not only are we experiencing a deeper peace and a deeper stillness, but we're also touching deeper obstacles and woundings. And as we're doing this, we're beginning to see for ourselves the three characteristics of life that Eugene mentioned and that the Buddha talked about. The fact that the suffering, or dukkha, that everything is impermanent, or anicca, and selflessness, anatta, that nothing has a separate existence or a separate self. And so that's what I'm going to be talking about tonight, how to work with the realization of these three characteristics. And this is how the Buddha talks about it. All formations are transient. All formations are subject to suffering. All things are without a self. Therefore, whatever there be of form, of feeling, perception, mental formation or consciousness, whether past, present or future, one's own or external, gross or subtle, lofty or low, far or near, one should understand according to reality and true wisdom. This does not belong to me, this I am not, and this is not myself. And so begin to begin talking about these, we begin with, um, with talking about suffering, because that's where the Buddha began his <laughs> teachings. And that was his initial motivation, to quench the suffering that he saw in himself and in the world. And dukkha, the translation of dukkha, means unsatisfactoriness, things that are unreliable, and then anguish. We don't have to look very far in our lives and on this retreat to see that we have very small sufferings, as well as the very large and very obvious ones in the world. There are so many levels of suffering. Our instinct is to run away from suffering and not to allow it into our hearts. And we fear it, and we have so many strategies for avoiding it and for denying it. And unwittingly, as a society, we're very good at causing it and perpetuating it. Buddha Dasa said, it's as if a dukkha-making machine has appeared in the world. (laughs) And how can we find peace with that? We're not brought up to work with it or tolerate it. And it's important to come to terms with it in our personal lives and on retreat here, if we're to be able to work with it in the world. And Buddha Dasa's cure for suffering was one handful of dharma. And so, how do we work with it? We begin to look closer, and we see that there are many moments of unsatisfactoriness in every hour, even. 
And if you think back to your past hour, maybe you were hungry as you were waiting in the line, and then you got bored in the line, and then there was sleepiness after dinner, and then restlessness, and then uncomfortableness, this constant unsatisfactoriness. And our bodies are in constant movement to try and avoid it. We're either we're driven by trying to avoid the unsatisfactoriness or reaching for the pleasure. And as we begin to see what we're doing as we sit and how pervasive this is, we begin to see that there's a deep sense of emptiness. And some of you have begun to talk about this in interviews. When I sit with the boredom, there's an emptiness underneath it or a fundamental restlessness. And sometimes it's described as an existential pain, the pain of the universe. And it's when we can begin to face it directly that we can find freedom. And it's hard to believe that we can face our own pain, never mind the world's pain when we're so conditioned to avoid it. And it starts when we're very small. Um, in my work sometimes as a physician, um, people will come bring their children in for immunizations. And often, um, you know, the mother will be holding the child and very anxious, and I give the immunization. And very often, immediately, either a breast or a bottle is stuck in the baby's mouth as it opens its mouth to cry. There's no chance for any <laughs> appreciation of suffering. Occasionally, um, a mother will rock or soothe the child and allow the child to cry before the child is fed. But mostly in our society, that's what our response is. Shut it up. <laughs> Don't feel it. We're afraid of having our loved ones be hurt because we're afraid of our own pain. And so I began to be really concerned about how to work with pain. Um, because you see so much of it as a physician, particularly birth and death and injury. And um, I started to study hypnosis. Um, and the man that I was learning it from, um, David Cheek, he was teaching anesthesia, where you can make your, you can use your, the power of your mind to make a part of your body anesthetized. And in fact, there are even people you may have read about who can use hypnosis. There was one man who had a gallbladder operation. Without any anesthetic, he used hypnosis. So I was really impressed by this. And I learned hypnosis, and I was able to make my hand go numb, and I could stick a needle in it, and this was great. Um, <laughs> but then when I went to the dentist, I thought, great, I will try without any anesthetic at the dentist. <laughs> Did it work? No. <laughs> Because I was scared, and <laughs> when we're afraid, often what we f what we fear is we fear the suffering more than the pain itself. And so I realized that if I can't do this, how can I expect my patients to do this? Um, because hypnosis was used in childbirth a fair amount, and if I didn't have the confidence, then there was no way I could imbue that um, in my patients. So. Later on, some years afterwards, I met Stephen Levine, and I began to see that there was another way of working with pain and suffering, and that was to explore it very gently. If we dive right into it, we can get lost, and some of you may have found that this last few days, that you can get lost in the pain, and that that's not useful. 
We want to feel our feelings, but if we're not mindful and we get lost, then it's like drowning. And so what I realized was that people needed to explore gently. And so when someone was going into labor, we could talk about how this was a normal process and that there is pain, there is discomfort, and that this passes. And so that the fear would lessen, so that when the intense sensations came, there wasn't that fear of them. And it was the fear of the suffering that was the problem for people. And some of you, you know, there are people in this room who've had children and, um, or who have witnessed women having children. And you know that in our society, very often, the nurses don't want women to be in pain. So they want an epidural to be given or a shot to be given or not a, we don't like to see other people suffer. And yet it's through suffering that we come to freedom. And when the spaciousness around it, when there's that ability to be with it, we don't have to back off and we don't have to run away and it become become bearable. Gavin Harrison says, he's a man who had AIDS and has written a lot um, in the lap of the Buddha is one of the books that he's written. He said, when times are hard, there's a margin of peace in just feeling okay about being overwhelmed. If the mind is steady and clear, it's possible to move into the center of pain and ask again, what is this? And as we sit and our mindfulness deepens, our ability to see and allow suffering grows. And just as we find more peace and more balanced states, we're able to touch deeper layers of painful feelings and deeper wounds. And as I've um, worked with people um, with pain and teaching mindfulness, I've seen over and over again how people begin to tolerate more and more of the discomfort and the pain. It's not that their condition is magically healed by mindfulness, it's that they're able to be with it. Um, there was a woman who was a heart transplant patient, and even though she had a new heart, she continued to have chest pain. And she was very afraid that it meant something was wrong, and so she would have panic attacks and be very fearful. And we're working with mindfulness, she began to understand her anxiety. And some eight weeks later, after we'd been working with mindfulness, she came in and, and she just had her house renovated. And normally this would have been a terrible thing for her because she needed to be in control. And she told me she'd had no chest pain and that she'd really been amazed. She couldn't have done that before. She was able to say, oh, that's just anxiety. And she was able to breathe with it and the chest pain didn't come anymore. And so we can begin to see how to work with suffering when we use mindfulness as a light to pay attention. And we also begin to see clearly how we create our own suffering. Eugene was talking about last night, um, he said, I'm attached. Well, I could say I'm an adder. And what I mean by that is there'll be a bare fact of something that happens in my life and I add all sorts of catastrophes to that bare fact. 
and we do that when we sit, something will arise and we'll immediately add all these factors onto it. And I'll give you an example. Um, one morning I had to get up very, very early to go to a birth. I seem to be stuck in obstetrics tonight. Um, sorry. And um, it was very early in the morning and I suddenly had this thought, oh, I've got a full day today, I'm working all day and I have to teach tonight. I'm going to get really exhausted, I won't be able to think, I won't have time to have a nap. And this was going on and on and on. And I was getting more anxious and feeling more and more exhausted. And then suddenly I came to a traffic light which said, stop. <laughs> and I stopped. And then I was just aware of what was happening. It was completely silent and it was raining on the car. And I thought, this is a beautiful time for someone to have a birth. And I came right into the present and I realized how much suffering I'd been creating in my mind by adding all these things. And that's what we do. We add. We're attached and we add. And we can see that any movement of mind, whether it's wanting or liking or disliking, create, can create suffering. Every time there's a contact with one of the six sense doors, we can start to grasp, or we can start to have aversion, or we can start to add. This sound might mean there's a noise. Maybe the noise is going to get louder. Maybe it's going to disturb my sitting. Maybe that person will snore for the entire sitting. And it, it creates, and that was just one sound, and there's a story. And so it's being able to see that clearly that we come to understand how we create suffering. But it isn't a, enough to understand, although it helps. What's required as well is being able to receive it with an open heart. It's as though true freedom is like a bird. One of my teachers had this analogy. And the bird has two wings. One is understanding and the other one is compassion. And we need both. Thich Nhat Hanh, who is a Vietnamese monk, had this to say about suffering. He said, I grew up in a time of war. There was destruction all around. Children, adults, values, a whole country. As a young person, I suffered a lot. Once the door of awareness is opened, you cannot close it. The wounds of war in me are still not all healed. There are nights I lie awake and embrace my people, my country, and the whole planet with my mindful breathing. Without suffering, you cannot grow. Without suffering, you cannot get the peace and joy you deserve. Please don't run away from your suffering. Embrace it, cherish it, go to the Buddha, sit with him, show him your pain. He will look at you with loving kindness and compassion and mindfulness and show you ways to embrace your suffering and look deeply into it. With understanding and compassion, you will be able to heal the wounds in your heart and the wounds in the world. The Buddha called suffering a holy truth because suffering has the capacity of showing us the path to liberation. 
Embrace your suffering and let it reveal to you the way to peace. And in small ways, in our sittings, we can experience the end of suffering when we have states of equanimity. When our mind is calm and equanimous, we don't move so much in reaction to things and there's peacefulness. We can realize that in small ways. And we can also see how um, suffering is created in us and in our society by the seeds that we sow. Often in our society, seeds of aversion and greed and judgment are grown from the time that we're very small. And we continue to water these seeds of suffering ourselves when we judge, when we grasp, and when we push away. And so what we do with our mindfulness and our practice is we're consciously planting new seeds of openness and patience and compassion and wakefulness and intimacy. And we do this through our practice. Just merely being mindful with a kind attention, with the intention to be open, is a way of nourishing these seeds. There was a story I read about a woman who who was a teacher in in an inner city area some years ago in the States. And um, she was teaching a class of 16-year-olds and one particular week they were all having a really hard time. They were suffering and they were, their self-esteem was terrible. They're, they were being mean to each other and they were judging themselves. They were just having a really <coughs> difficult time. And she felt really badly for them. And just on an inspiration, she took out some pieces of paper and she did with them an exercise some of you may have done. She gave each of them a piece of paper She told them to write their names on it. And she said to them to pass it round the class. And each one, as they received the piece of paper and saw the name at the top, was to write something they respected or liked or appreciated about that person. And so each of them did that. And she collected all the pieces of paper. And the next day, she made an award and she gave them out. And they really were... They really seemed uplifted by it, and the year continued, and she didn't think any more about it. And then some years later, she got um, an invitation in the mail to a funeral of one of the boys in the class. And this boy had been killed in the war, in the Vietnam War. And she went to the funeral, and there were many of the, the young people from that class. And the mother of the boy came up to her and gave her the piece of paper and said, My son carried this in his pocket next to his heart, all through the war. And she was moved to tears by that. It was what held him safe. And another young woman came up to her and said to her, My husband was in your class, and that piece of paper meant so much to him, we have it in our wedding album. Other children came up to her and told her similar things. Not children, other young people came up to her. And so she had planted these seeds in them of self-respect 
and appreciation and support that have been with them through hard times. And so we can, it is possible to plant those seeds in our lives. And I'd like to move to talking now about Anicca, which is the second of the spiritual insights. Every time we look at something, or touch, or listen, or experience through any of those sense doors, our perception can reveal the nature of impermanence, the life of that young man, these flowers that are now dying this rose that I didn't put in any water. The words that I'm saying are going. January as a month is about to disappear. It's all just dissolving. The taste of the food you ate at tea. It's the nature of things to change. And things change because conditions are constantly changing. And it's really hard for us to accept this truth. We can know it intellectually, yes, of course things change, but it's really hard for us to accept it. We want to make things solid and unchanging. We feel betrayed when we're getting older. I feel betrayed when I'm getting older. I can't hike up as fast and as far as I used to. And um, it's, it's not under our control. And we fight growing old. Um, I had a woman in one of, um, one of the retreats that I was teaching, and she'd had cancer. And um, it had been thought that she was going to die. And um, she had a remission. And she said that someone came up to her on the street and said, oh, how wonderful, you must be so relieved now you know you're not going to die. And she said, well, of course I'm going to die. <laughs> because <laughs> she realized that to her, because she'd been through this, she really got it that she was going to die, but that her friend didn't really <laughs> yet get it. Um, and I realized this when my parents died over the past few, de- few years. I suddenly got it. Everybody's mother dies. And somehow there's this weird belief that it's not going to happen to me. <laughs> And yet, everyone in this room's mother has or will die. We all will. And it's, it's, it's an amazing thing that somehow, on some level, we don't get it. And impermanence can teach us to respect and value every moment, to appreciate fully without attachment and without forgetfulness. And very often I've seen, and probably many of you have, that when people are terminally ill or in a crisis, suddenly there's that ability to fully love someone in the family, to fully forgive, to fully be in the moment, a sudden realization that this is how long I have. And we just come into that that awareness. But we don't have to be dying or in crisis to realize the truth of impermanence and change. To live fully is to let go and die with each passing moment. 
and to be reborn in each new one. Coming to terms with, with change requires a tremendous and a continual letting go. And our mindfulness practice teaches us these little deaths to die to our attachment, to die to our expectations, our expectation that this retreat will bring the bliss that the last one gave us, our expectation that this sitting will be as peaceful as the last one was. Each of our expectations is dying moment to moment. Our fears, our plans, and we can nourish this, this insight of impermanence by simply in each sitting that we do, really being with the instructions, recognizing what's arising, feeling it fully, seeing what happens to it. And as was mentioned this morning, as it starts to fade, just being with the space as it dissolves, not immediately rushing to the breath and filling in the space but seeing things arising, dissolving. Each experience arises and passes. Even the observing arises and passes. We can see the impermanence of life occurring at every moment, on every level. And when we see really deeply that things change, we begin to trust more. and We don't have to grasp so hard or hold on so tightly. And I think it was Manindra, I, I'm sorry, my memory is not so great, who said this. I just have a memory of this being taught to me. It's let go a little bit and you'll have a little bit of freedom. Let go a lot and you can experience a lot of freedom. Let go completely and there'll be complete freedom. And it takes faith to let go. And over and over again, that faith develops as we see that we can be with each letting go. When we experience, oh, it was possible to die to that little expectation or that moment of discomfort. And we build trust. And then we begin to see that we don't hold on to anything, not even the insights. I'm sure you've seen that insights will come and, oh, that was a great insight. I want to stay with this one for a while and really enjoy it. And we'll hold on to it. And when we do that, in a way it's preventing the next one from arising and revealing itself. And so it's being able to let go to even the insights, to even the awareness of impermanence. Huang Po says, consider the sunlight You may say that it is near, yet if you pursue it from world to world, you will never catch it. You may say that it is far, yet is right before your eyes. Chase it, and it always eludes you. Run from it, and it is always there. From this you can understand how it is with the true nature of things. Which brings us to the third characteristic, anatta, or selflessness. 
the idea that nothing can be called a permanent self, that nothing has a permanent exist, that nothing has a separate existence or a separate self. There's nothing that's separate from the flow of experience. Or as Thich Nhat Hanh says, everything interbees or is interconnected with everything else. Thich Nhat Hanh has a, a lovely example um, to explain this concept of interbeing. And he tells it with his story of making cookies. And he says to imagine that you have a big batch of dough and that the moment each cookie leaves the bowl of dough and is placed on the cookie tray, it starts to see it as self as separate. Now you, the maker of the cookies, know better. And you have compassion for them. You know that they're originally all one. And even now, the happiness of each cookie is still the happiness of all the other cookies. But they have developed discriminating perception, or vikalpa. And suddenly they set up barriers between themselves. And when you put them in the oven, they begin to talk to each other. Get out of my way. Stop spreading into me. I have more chocolate chips than you have. I am brown and beautiful, and you are ugly. And we tend to behave this way. And it creates suffering. And we all have the possibility to live with non-discriminating wisdom. And we need to train ourselves in this way. And have the realization that everyone and everything belongs to the same stream of life. And when we talk about non-self, it's not a doctrine or a philosophy. It's an insight that can help us live more deeply and suffer less. And in the Buddhist time, the philosopher Vatsigotra, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, asked the Buddha, he came to the Buddha and he said, is there a self? And the Buddha didn't answer him. And Vatsigotra persisted. He said, do you mean that there's no self? And the Buddha still didn't answer. And he asked him a third time. And the Buddha still just sat. And so he went away. And Ananda, who had been watching this, said, Why didn't you answer? You teach us that there's no self. And the Buddha said, He was looking for a theory. He wasn't looking for a way to resolve obstacles. And so, how can we understand anatta? As Eugene was saying, last night, it doesn't mean that we don't exist, or that self is bad, or that we have to get rid of a self, or that we have to make things empty of self. It's beginning to understand from our own direct experience. We don't have to get out of ourselves and have an out-of-body experience. We need to come into our bodies and be with each moment and experience the changing and the constant arising and passing, and see that it's not under our control. And some of you have probably experienced this as the practice deepens. You've seen the thoughts dissolving and things becoming very quiet. And sometimes, when we get very quiet, fear can come, and anxiety and thoughts and planning can suddenly rush in. 
we wonder what's happening. And sometimes what's happening <coughs> is that all these, as, as the thoughts and the sensations and the feelings start to dissolve, so does the sense of self. And that's scary. And even though we may have read about it, and we may have this idea that to become not, to be that we need to become nothing to become everything, our ego doesn't like it. It's very hard to let go, and it feels as though we'll die. And the belief that we're separate and solid is very strong and conditioned. Buddha Dasa talks about the root of suf- root cause of suffering. And he says it's a delusion or a wrong understanding that there's an I and a mine. And he describes this eyeing and mying as a spiritual disease that requires a handful of dharma. That's what he was talking about. Every time there's a contact at one of the sense doors, there's a possibility for I or mine to arise or develop. I'm this, I'm that, this is mine. Other philosophers around the same time as the Buddha um, also saw this cause, and they felt that it was necessary to get rid of the I and the mine. And they called what remained the true self. But the Buddha didn't go with this terminology. And he felt that he wanted to avoid any attachment at all. And that in calling something a true self, there was immediately a a possibility of attachment. And he called this state that was free of I and free of mine, voidness or emptiness empty of a separate sense of self. And it's similar to the interbeing of Thich Nhat Hanh. Emptiness refers to a basic openness or non-separation that we can experience when our fixed and small sense of self dissolves. And this voidness or emptiness is the essence of all things and it's the character of the non-clinging mind. And how do we work with this? How do we come to understand it? Buddhadasa's cure, the handful of dharma that he talks about, to this disease of eyeing and mying, he says, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I or mine. If the mind is full of I or mine, mindfulness and wisdom can't enter. But if mindfulness and wisdom are present, then eyeing and mying will dissolve. Once when I was on, um, I think it was an old student's retreat, um, I was sitting and I'd become quite concentrated. And the teacher, I think it was Jack at the time, was giving a beautiful guided loving-kindness meditation. And I was in a state of aversion. It was a very deep state of aversion, but it was still aversion. And so I was not into the loving-kindness. I could not feel one iota of loving-kindness for myself. And so I didn't try. I thought, ah, I'll just do Vipassana. (coughs) At the end of the sitting, when everyone had left, um, I was still quite concentrated, but still very resistant to loving-kindness. And all of a sudden, I had this very clear visual image of myself at my desk in my office. 
and I could see my face and I was frowning and all of a sudden I began to peel these labels off my face. It was the messiest desk in the office. Can't organize worse shit. And I just continued all these self-judgments and I was peeling them off this face and peeling them off. And all of a sudden there was nothing there. There was nobody. And I just started to laugh. There is no one that all these labels are attached to. I'm wasting my time. And it was a really deep realization that we build up this persona. I could have built a face of how I wanted the world to see me, but I was just peeling it off and there was nobody underneath. And it was very healing to have that experience um, of seeing how identified I'd become with all the labels. And we're not trained in this way of selflessness. From the moment we're born, we hear my, my mother, my bowl, my ball, my. Everything is my and mine. And by the time we get to be adults, we're stuffed full of mine and we're stuffed full of attachment. There's a wonderful story that I like from the suttas. It's the story of Angulimala. And he was... Um, a murderer. He was not a particularly nice character. And he killed people, and when he killed them, he cut off their fingers and he hung them round his neck. And that's what, the, that's what Angulimala means. It means finger necklace. And everybody was terrified of him. And one day, um, the Buddha was out walking in the area where he, he um, was roaming in, in the hills. And um, the Buddha met Angulimala. And Angulimala was amazed that the Buddha was not afraid of him because normally people ran off. And he confronted the Buddha as to why he was not afraid. And the Buddha said, very simply, I have stopped, you have not stopped. And in that moment, Angulimala came to a realization. And what he realized was that what he saw very deeply, was that the Buddha had stopped I and mine. He had stopped clinging. There was no one there to receive this threat. And he stopped being a mass murderer and he became a, a disciple. And he, <laughs> and he became, a te- uh, he became um, someone who, who also taught. And it wasn't that he'd stopped murdering. It was that he saw that he needed to stop eyeing and mying. <laughs> so how do we stop? <laughs> it's not so easy. Sometimes the traffic lights do it for us, but not very often. Um, the Buddha described us as this collection of five changing processes the physical body, feelings, perceptions, responses, um, flow of consciousness. And self forms whenever we grasp at or identify with any one of them. When there's contact with a form, for example, sound, an odor, and a sensation, there's a feeling, a feeling is conditioned, unpleasant or pleasant or neutral. And that in turn can condition a craving I like, I don't like, I don't want. And then we can cling to that, and then suffering is created. 
And if we can bring our mindfulness to that, and we can be aware of just the sensation before the aversion happens, then there's a possibility for the sense of self to dissolve. In fact, even if we don't manage that and we don't notice until the aversion has developed, we can still see that there's just aversion before the sense of I or mind forms. In the Buddhist teachings, there's a wonderful um, description of this. To he talked to a disciple, a disciple called Bahia, and he said, "Oh Bahia, whenever you see a form, let there be just the seeing. Whenever you hear a sound, let there be just the hearing. When you smell an odor, let there be just smelling. When you taste a flavor." Let there be just the tasting. When a thought arises, let it be just a natural phenomena arising in the mind. When you practice like this, there will be no self, no I. When there is no self, there will be no running that way, no coming this way, and no stopping anywhere. Self doesn't exist. That is the end of dukkha. That itself is nibbana. And so we can begin to experience this in our sitting gradually, just as we see aversion and we see the contractions <coughs> around it. And I found it. Um, very powerful teaching to be with just the bare experience. When I was sitting here um, just before the talk, I saw I was really realizing I was feeling uncomfortable, realizing oh I want to give a good Dharma talk, and realizing that there was an attachment to that, and then seeing the contraction around that, and what was happening was it was my Dharma talk. It wasn't just a dharma talk, and as long as it was my dharma talk, then if it's a good one, there's praise, and if it's a bad one, there's blame. And when I saw the contraction around that my, there was a release, and then there was a sense of, oh, um, then the sense of I could give a good dharma talk, and there was a sense of specialness and a contraction around that. I'm special. <laughs> right, and so then, then I really I saw the contraction in my body, and I felt it, and it released, and then there was just specialness. Specialness arose, and it dissolved. If I give a, if I give a dharma talk, and people don't understand it, or they find it boring, there was a contraction around that, and I saw oh, embarrassment. When it's my embarrassment, there's uncomfortableness and discomfort. If the contraction releases, it's just embarrassment. It arises and it passes. And so, seeing the subtle levels of contraction around the mind and the releasing allows the state to just arise and pass. Just the bare feeling can pass. 
And so if we can be present with mindfulness and just be with the seeing and the hearing and the touching and the tasting and the smelling and not the adding and not the contracting and not the attachment, there's a freedom. And when that sense of no self is there, even if it's just a moment, there's a sense of interconnectedness with, with everyone. And some of you have felt that. You felt this interconnectedness and love for others and the compassion that comes spontaneously with that. When we think we're separate, it's easy to oppose each other and to have judgments like the cookies. And yet we have to cultivate the sense of non-separateness. And we have to cultivate um, the direct experiences of the selflessness. And so we also need to begin to have that awareness of cultivating or of sowing seeds that I talked about. But it takes time. It's little by little. And I have another story that I like, which is another children's story. And this is a story of frog and toad, which many parents here will recognize. And in this story, frog has made a beautiful garden. It's full of lovely flowers. And toad sees and admires the garden and wants a garden like it. And so frog said, well, you can have a garden too. You just have to dig the soil and plant the seeds and take care of them. And so he said, he tells Toad how to do this, and he said, you go and dig your garden, I'll bring you some seeds tomorrow. So Toad digs the garden, and the next morning Frog appears, and Toad has a wonderful time planting all the seeds and patting them in, and, and then he goes inside and he has dinner. And he comes out, they haven't grown yet. Where are my flowers? They haven't grown. And he's quite distressed, and. He tells Frog, and Frog says, well, they need time and they need water. So he waters the seeds and he goes to bed and gets up the next morning, looks out, no flowers. The seeds haven't sprouted. Why? Why haven't my seeds grown? I did the right thing. And so he becomes very concerned about the seeds and he marches up and down and he gets impatience with them. Grow, seeds, grow, damn it. And the seeds don't grow. They just stay in the ground. And the next morning he gets up and the seeds still haven't emerged from the ground and he has despair about the seeds not growing and he cries. And so that night he comes out and he thinks, well, the seeds must be lonely. And he reads them a story and he sings to the seeds. He sings them a good night tale. And then he goes to bed and he's exhausted. And this goes on and then finally he gets up and he goes outside and the little shoots are coming up out of the ground. And he's so happy. And Frog comes over and Toad is jumping up and down. My seeds grew, my seeds grew. It's so exhausting, the process of growing a garden. And we're exhausted. We get exhausted. But we also need to recognize that patience is an important factor here. The experience of of, of deeply experiencing permanence and no self. We can't just plant a seed and sit down on our pillow and be enlightened. <laughs> um, and the growing the seeds and the watering them takes time. 
and we need to cultivate patience. We can sing to our seeds and we can read them stories and we can treat them with compassion. But when we have an agenda it's <laughs> and an expectation, we're attached. And so it's also important to remember that when the Buddha talked about suffering, he simply said, there is suffering. He didn't say, I am suffering. It's not grasping the problem and the judgments and seeing them as personal faults. Our inability to make the seeds grow as fast as we assume everyone else is making them grow, or whatever it is. It's on my worrying about what the Dharma talk is like. It's not personal, but just contemplating them as unsatisfactory, impermanent, and selfless. And when we insist on something that's impermanent and without self, being permanent and having a self, we suffer. And when we can remember that nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine, we see that we don't have to run after anything anymore. All we need to do is just return to ourselves and touch base with our true nature with the next breath to find peace and to find joy. It teaches us that we already are what we want to become. And so I'd like to end with this chant. And the chant means, all compound things are impermanent. They have the nature to arise and pass away. To be in harmony with the truth brings true happiness. Anicca vata sankara Upaduaya damino, Upakituwa niruchanti, Te sang upasumo suko. That's it. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.